Hey everyone, uh, Patrick here. Uh, Jerry and I wanted to address some recent events uh, separate from the cast. Uh, you know, Jerry and I have always stood for inclusiveness, diversity, and positivity. We do not believe that directly or indirectly attacking others in our community makes us any better. It unequivocally harms our community and, more importantly, the people in it. And while there is certainly value in being critical of the game and the community itself, Tearing down individual members is despicable, especially in the way that we saw trolls directed toward Christine Sprankle. Some of our friends, including ones who have made multiple appearances on this podcast, have suffered in kind. I will miss Christine's work, her creativity, and her passion for magic. We are both indebted to her and are worse off as a result of her departure. We cannot offer solutions. I can't give you personal experiences on this subject, but we can listen to those who have. We can elevate marginalized folk. We can push for change. But most importantly, we can listen and we can support. We can ask wizards to help prevent this type of harassment from driving any more awesome members of our community out. At the end of the day, I want to be proud of the work that we do here. I want to believe that in some way, our weekly conversations have been at a minimum, entertaining, and at their best, educational, engaging, and inspiring. I hope that all our listeners feel the same way and do their own part to stand for inclusiveness, diversity, and positivity. Magic is power. I am your legacy newbie, and with me this week, as always, Mr. Jerry Me. What's up, Jerry? Not much, Pat. How you doing? I am... You know what? I'm feeling the Christmas spirit right now, my friend. Chris, you know, you were bad-mouthing Black Friday last week, and now you're just full into uh, Christmas spirit? Well, I'm drinking I'm drinking vodka and, and, uh, and eggnog, so that's <laughs> Is probably it- why. Isn't eggnog already alcoholic? Did you add alcohol to an alcoholic beverage? So if you make it at home, you can make it alcoholic. Um, but this is just like the typical hood brand golden eggnog. And then oh, I okay. Added a couple shots of um, va- uh, vanilla vodka to it, and it's delicious. A little sprinkle of cinnamon on top, and I'm feeling like Kris Kringle. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's a magical winterland this, oh, it's uh, magical. this week. It's magical. Um, so as always, you know, we want to thank hipstersofthecoast.com for bringing you Leaving a Legacy to your ears every Friday. You can check out uh, Hipsters for a ton of legacy content. They have every format on there. We plug them every week. Check it out, hipstersofthecoast.com. And also, if you want to support the show directly, you can visit patreon.com slash leavingalegacy. Uh, you can support the show for as little as a dollar an episode. We have some great rewards. Jerry's working on these unbelievable beer steins. Um, we have... Uh, <laughs> I am deadlocked in negotiation. I send them an email. It's like, hey, if we buy in bulk, can we get a deal to make these a little bit cheaper? They're like, sure. How many do you want? Uh, you know, this many. It's like, okay, here's the same price as I would charge you for 10, but times this many. I'm like, that's not that's not how buying in bulk works. <laughs> that's, that's not a deal. That's not what also, a deal is. Also, they're based in Ukraine, so like the person I'm working with, uh, 
doesn't have the best grasp of the English. You know, oh, I don't have any understanding of Russian, so I don't blame them at all. But <laughs> <laughs> these negotiations are slow. Uh, so uh, good news. My boss is actually Ukrainian and speaks fluent uh, Russian and all kinds of languages. So I might be able to help you out on that front. <laughs> all right, we'll rope them in. <laughs> uh, we also have uh, the Discord chat. We have stickers and shout outs in the cast and play mats. A uh, ton of great stuff. So check it out. Uh, the link is in the show notes. Uh, so this week. Uh, Jerry got us a special guest. Um, we, we want to introduce uh, Phil Gallagher. What's going on, Phil? How you doing, man? Hey, I'm doing great. Hi, everyone. Awesome. We uh, we had Phil on this week. Uh, we are going to talk about death and taxes. This is a DNT episode. Um, it's his. I, Phil, I'm, I assume it's your favorite deck, right? You've had a lot of success <laughs> with it. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of great legacy decks, and then there's this pile of terrible white creatures that has an allure that I can't explain. So, yeah, we're, we're going to have to go with yes on that one. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Um, all right. So before we get into that, um, we always like to talk about our weekend legacy. My segment is, sor- is very short. I didn't get to play. I've been playing too much Dragon Age. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> so Jerry, I know you uh, played uh, the TJ's event this past weekend uh, with Bug. So tell me about your tournament, man. I know. I guess I have to, uh, you know, carry the weight of both of us for this podcast. I'm sure your back must be killing you, Jerry. <laughs> um, I did finally get out to play. I played at a TJ's event, uh, the Legacy 1K, which was part of their modern uh, premiere event that they hold at the DCU Center in Worcester, uh, which is where, like, all the SCGs take place and I think any gps uh, yeah the gps as well mm-hmm. um but yeah I, I had a good time i ended up top aiding um round one i actually played against the one and only death and taxes <laughs> um so i was able to kind of close that one out pretty quick basically i made sure to counter his aether vials and made sure mother of ruins never lived through an upkeep step and the matchup was pretty easy in that regard uh, the nice. Bug Delver list I'm running just has so much removal between Collective Brutality, Fatal Push, uh, Abrupt Decay, uh, and then, you know, factoring in all the, like, hand disruption, like, Thought Seize and Days. Like, things don't survive for very long. <laughs> um, so Death and Taxes was just a quick 2-0. Uh, I played our our friend of the cast, uh, Peter Archambault. He was on this sweet Naya Loam list. <laughs> so it was like, it's like aggro Loam, but instead of black, it was running white. Um, and yeah, well, I forget the name of this card. It's a terrible card, Peter. Stop it. <laughs> uh, it's like green, red, white. Deal. F- <laughs> is that what it is? <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like deal five damage divided as you choose and then your opponent gains five life <laughs> what and he's like it triggers punishing fire it returns oh, punishing fire <laughs> i mean he did get a two for one killing two of my death right shamans and i think pinging me for one yeah, so that card so that's a lose lose <laughs> <laughs> but i still i still was able to beat him uh i took that down um I lost a red black reanimator. Like, man, I did. I, I even have like two edict effects in the deck um, with the uh, diabolic edict, and like I stripped his hands. He was hell bent. I have a Gurmag angler uh, in play. He's dead on board. All I need to do is untap, but he has one more draw step, and he just rips exhum off the top in game three. <laughs> 
uh, and exhumes uh, like Inkwell Leviathan and kills me. So uh, ended up losing the reanimator, uh, but I was able to take it back uh, in the next round. I played against Grixis Delver, and that's that's a really fun matchup. I like the you know Bug Delver versus Grix, Grixis ma- uh, Delver matchup. It's you know really you know thought intensive, and it just has some fun magic games tied to it. Uh, but I was able to win that, and then uh, for my fifth round, uh, I actually got uh, paired against a friend of the cast, uh, David Snow, and we sit down, Pat, and he just goes, listen, um, I'm probably just going to have to scoop to you because my wife just called and I'm late for church. Oh, no. <laughs> So he's like, uh, by the way, it was great getting to meet you, uh, uh, but here you go. Here's a free win. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> awesome. Well, I mean, that that that's cool. Free wins are awesome. Uh, it, was, it sucked he had to go and we wouldn't get to play because he was playing the sweet Tezzerator list. I had actually seen him in the previous round turn one a Tezzerator, uh, Tezzeret, off of like Ancient Tomb, uh, Mox Opal, Mox Opal, and then turn the Mox into, uh, not Mox Opal, Chrome Mox. Uh, Chromox, Chromox, and he turned one of the Chromoxes into a 5-5. Five five. So just a Tezzeret and a 5-5 five five turn one. <laughs> um, Seems good. But the weird thing is, is p- top eight goes up, and even though he scooped to me, he still made top eight. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. The way the breakers and, like, everything worked out, he still made top eight, even though he scooped to me the last round, but he had already left. <laughs> oh, so we had like the weird situation where top eight was only seven people and someone was going to get a buy in top eight. <laughs> so Jeez. the judge ended up like rewinding it because uh, I guess the judge forgot to drop him from the system since it was mm-hmm. going to top eight. He probably didn't think it mattered. Um, so they redo it. And like the person in ninth place ended up making it into top eight. Nice. Um, so we played it out and of course I played against Josh Sissio in the very start of top eight and he was on miracles and he just utterly crushed me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, the miracles matchup I I feel is pretty hard for the deck just because, um, we're not super aggressive and they can just one for one us really well, uh, just uh, grind the value. But I made a punt where I played two Delver of secrets into a pyroclasm that I knew he had. Uh, and I just forgot it was in his hand. Like I thought seized him earlier, saw it and then forgot it. And then a couple turns later I drew uh, like Delver, Delver, uh, instant or sorcery off of brainstorm. So I'm like, Oh, well I'm just going to play these two Delvers and, you know, flip them. But it was a punt. I was tired. That's, that's what happens. I mean, if I had to lose someone, Josh is the person to lose to. <laughs> oh yeah. And he also um, like, he'll get those edges too. Like Josh is just a, he's, he's a, a very good player. player. He really that, Yeah. That's why he always plays decks like Miracles, Landstill, uh, yeah. things like that, just because, you know, those are the decks he really excels at. He, he doesn't need the free win decks like Stink and Show. He can just, he can just <laughs> hey. outplay you. You know what I mean? Hey. Well, I, don't, I don't mean that to be disparaging. I'm not saying that to be disparaging. I'm just saying, like, it's, a, it's, a, it's similar to a deck like Death and Taxes. Like, you need to outplay your opponents to win. Yeah. You can't just play your cards and win. That's just not how that deck works. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the funny thing is, so after the tournament, we all went to uh, Nancy Chang's Chinese Buffet. Anyone in Worcester, hit that place up. Best best Chinese food. And Which one is it? Nancy Chang's. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so good. Uh, their butterfly shrimp, I would kill a man for. <laughs> 
but uh we're we go to the restaurant at the end uh we go to pay and josh pays for me i'm like what are you doing he's like uh well i was gonna offer you the prize split but i didn't know how to do it without uh you know being really <laughs> suspicious <laughs> like oh okay <laughs> nice. uh, so josh josh treated me to chinese after <laughs> awesome good guy josh uh, good guy josh he'll dream he'll dream cut in top eight but he'll still then, treat you to dinner and then he'll wine and dine you <laughs> <laughs> uh what about you phil you play any magic this week uh paper magic no uh i think i got through like four leagues this week damn yeah when when you have a weekend plus a couple extra days because of thanksgiving and mm. you don't have to travel it adds up two four ones a 2-3, and then a very embarrassing 0-5, where every, everything that could possibly go wrong went wrong. <laughs> Jeez. And yeah, that, uh, was this Death and Taxes happen. you were playing? Yes, uh, all d and All the yeah. <laughs> Did you just, do you feel there's just a lot of hate right now online, or? Um, it was a combination of hitting some bad matchups, plus a couple of really unfortunate mulligans, Plus a couple of just devastating, sick rip and treat the angels blind off the top sort of scenarios where I just I just packed it in and said, all right, it's not my day. And I moved on. Yeah. Sometimes you just got to have you have those leagues you just give up on. Yeah. I mean, but I'm coming off of two cash paper events in a row where I went like uh, seven, two and then like ten and five or something like that. So I'm. I'm happy with the deck overall, but everyone has their events where it's just not meant to be. Nice. Yeah, so I get, tell tell us a little bit uh about your yourself and with the deck. Uh, you're I would say you're probably the face of uh of Death and Taxes at this point. Yeah, um you know, I'm not going to claim that I'm the best player or anything <laughs> like that because there are a lot of really great D&T players who we see once a year or something like that at the Legacy GP, and that's all the content we see from them. You know, there are some amazing people overseas. Um, you know, uh, Anna Voldson and Bonde come to mind, uh, as well as Mark Koenig. Um, but I'm definitely probably the most active in terms of producing content for the deck. Uh, the deck <clears throat> is sort of a pet project for me at this point. I'm too stubborn and stupid to, to give up on it. But I do really think it's good. Most of the time. Uh, I've been playing it since uh, probably about 2011 or 2012, somewhere in there. Uh, So for a a good number of years. And in about the past year and a half, I've done a lot more in sort of uh, pushing content out there. Uh, Go ahead. Yeah, so I was gonna say, um, you know, when did the the website come about? Because so you 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 know run and operate Thraben University, which is an entire website dedicated to death and taxes, uh, which I would like to see for more decks out there. We, you know, we see Bryant Cook with uh, Tess and Thraben University for death and taxes. I really like this uh, trend in you know very specified uh, legacy content. Oh yeah. Uh... Bryant Cook was in in many ways my inspiration for the site because uh, what he has done for Storm is phenomenal. It's just amazing. His site's a little prettier than mine. He's he's got the right background in it to make it look. <laughs> the graphic design, uh, you know, skills kind of come into play there. <laughs> yeah, 
Um, so previously, I had been very active on uh, MTG Salvation, which for some reason was the DNT spot of choice for years and years and years. Um, and then the source recently has overtaken it. But I noticed after being, you know, one of the most active posters there that I kept answering the same questions like once a mm. week. Can I build this deck without port? Do I really need to spend $100 on each one of these Caracas? Hey, why doesn't this card see play? And finally I realized, hey, maybe we need something a little bit better than a primer as the first post. <laughs> and, uh, that's what inspired me to make this website. Awesome. Um, so, you know, I'm on it right now. You just kind of have a collection of, uh, you know, videos uh, of the deck uh, as well as, um, you know, you kind of have a primer of playing the deck, how to build the deck, mana, you know, mana base, which I think is funny. Be, Death and Taxes being a monocolor deck, most people would think, oh, it, how hard can the mana base be? But there are actually a lot of options for you to choose from. Yeah. So I originally, when I built the deck, thought this is the mana base, this is the way that it has to be. And then I played the deck for years, and I went, you know, the question of whether you run 23 or 24 lands is a real question. The question of how many Cavern of Souls you run on a given, on a given weekend really matters, you know. Whether or not you include some uh, Mishra's Factories or some Flagstones in your flex slots have real implications on the rest of your deck. And then if you get cute and you start splashing cards like Orzhov Pontiff and Magus of the Moon, that, uh, adds a whole lot more math to the equation. Right, for sure. Um, and you've also, you've had a lot of success with the deck, too. I pulled up your results here, and it's, let's see, you got, over the last two years, you have nine uh, SCG top eights. Uh, most recently, you top eighted uh, Star City Games Baltimore uh, back in February. Um, and I almost feel, was that the last time we've seen Death and Taxes top eight? I feel it, it hasn't shown up in the top eight rankings very uh, lately. Um, of paper events, not in the top eight, um, Michael Derkso finished uh, in top 16 in, uh, I think it was DC, the Open, or, or somewhere right around there. And I, I finished, I think, top 32 there. Um, DNT has had a decent amount of success in the Legacy Challenges. It keeps popping up there. Um, although some of the lists are a little weird. Um, but it's been a handful of very dedicated players who have been putting up results with the deck recently. Mm -hmm. Do you feel, uh, you know, there was a time probably, you know, getting close to a year ago now where it felt like there was almost a death and taxes bandwagon. It saw a lot of, you know, really high profile wins and I felt everyone and their mother was building death and taxes. Do you feel that kind of phase has passed? It's not uh, so much in vogue, and it's now just kind of the, the dedicated players that are left? So there's this weird thing that happened about a year ago where D&T picked up a huge amount of popularity. And I think the reasons are twofold. Uh, number one, I think I gave the deck a lot more press and made getting better at the deck a lot more accessible than it used to be. And I don't, I don't mean to toot my own horn here, but D&T is really hard to play well. There are mm -hmm. a lot of decks that you can pick up and get to 80 or 90% playing efficiency quickly. D&T is not one of those, and you might get your butt kicked with the deck for a couple of years before you really know what's going on. So I think I helped on that front. 
and I think the deck became significantly cheaper, both on uh, Magic Online and on paper, due to various reprints. So I think it got a lot of traction for those two reasons. Yeah, I agree. You know, on Magic Online, they did a bunch of uh, Mercady Mass flashback drafts, uh, plus I think it was a promo Rashad import uh, that went out. So that that was always kind of the gatekeeper on Magic Online, just how expensive Rashad import was. Like it was the most expensive card in Legacy for the longest time on Modo, uh, by like a head and a head and shoulders. And then in uh, paper with Eternal Masters, it, it felt like you know probably sixty percent of the deck got reprinted uh, within kind of a six month time frame. Yeah, and some of the promos as well. Uh, like we got Thalia promos and we got Stoneforge promos as well. Um, the mm. cards were everywhere. Yeah, that, I feel that. So, uh, sneak and show is a deck that I feel you can like ninety percent of it you can make with uh, just promos. And death and taxes is another deck like that where it feels like was just systematically going down the list and reprinting every piece in a promo version. Yeah, as as soon as we get a paper port reprint, which I expect is just going to come any day now. Um, I've been waiting for a port reprint in paper for like two years. I got a tabernacle years ago being like, oh, now once they reprint port, I can play lands. And I'm still waiting for it. EMA 2. It'll be out in June this year. I'm calling it. I'm calling it. Called shots. Called shots. (laughs) Uh, But yeah. So, okay. So, yeah. So, um, and where do you, where do you see the kind of the progression? So death and taxes got super popular. uh, Then what happened? Okay, so Miracles was secretly an amazing matchup for a good Death and Taxes player. Um, and I think a good reason to play Death and Taxes was its Miracles matchup, because you had Aether Vial, you had Cavern of Souls, you had Thalia, Sanctum Prelate, Equipment. You had a lot of things that just made their life very difficult. And then Top got itself banned, and we entered the Wild West of no one knows what Death and Taxes needs to do. Death and Taxes is a deck that needs to be geared towards a specific metagame. Its flex slots, its land, its sideboard cards need to be adjusted to hate out specific decks. And no one knew what the metagame was like. And so all of the elves and all the storm just came rushing forth and regular D&T got blown away and was a terrible deck to play for probably about two months. Things started mm-hmm. stabilizing afterwards and DNT became an okay deck again. A lot of players are now scared off because of the check pile matchup. The the newer players are getting destroyed in that matchup, and and they just you know write to me being like, how do you win this matchup? I don't know how I'm supposed to beat Culligan's command, Snapcaster Mage, Culligan's command, and that's a real concern. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Culligan's Command is... Oh, man. <laughs> it's like, well, I'll take your Aether Vial and uh, also your Thalia or your Stoneforge Mystic or your equipment. Like, God, it's like a kid in the candy shop when you're choosing modes with Culligan's Command against Death and Taxes. Yeah. So I I adapted to that matchup in a weird sort of way, and I moved to four Mirroring Crusaders because they have a heck of a time getting that bad boy off the table. Um, and since doing so, my win percentage against Checkpile is absurdly high, uh, something like 80% or something like that. So I'm doing fine personally, but other, other people are really struggling. 
Okay. So uh, where where is the list uh, now? Could you kind of run down what, uh, you know, if you were going to sleeve up the deck and go to an event tomorrow, what you would be playing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's sort of a core of the deck that doesn't really change much. Uh, in a traditional mono-white list, you have ten planes, four ports, four wastes, three Caracas, and two caverns. Uh, and that rarely changes these days, unless you're doing something spicy. Uh, mm. The rest of the core of the deck, in my mind right now, is Flickerwisp, Crusader, Mom, Revoker, Recruiter, Stoneforge, Thalia. And those have all been players for a long time. What numbers exactly you choose to run vary depending on what you're trying to beat on a given weekend. Uh, Michael Derkso and I have been talking a lot about the last slot or two in the main deck, and it has given us infinite grief. Right now, the things that are on the table are Sanctum Prelate and Vryn Wingmare, both as various taxing cards that are a little difficult for people to deal with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember when Wingmare being printed and everyone saying, you know, this is the this is the end of days, death and taxes is this powerful <laughs> new, new uh, tool, and it's pretty much like a one of, maybe a two of. D&T went through a really weird period where R&D just decided to throw cards at us that were increasingly yeah. <laughs> better and better and better. I was extremely upset as a sneak and show player. I'm like, why does this matchup need to get worse? Why are you giving them more toys? <laughs> it was like containment priest into, into wingmare into, uh, uh, what is it called? Thalia Heretic Saint Cathar. Yeah. Thalia Heretic Cathar, Sanctum Prelate, Imperial, uh, Jailer. <laughs> <laughs> just stop it death uh and d so sort of funny aside on that note that matchup has kind of come full circle and this is going to sound kind of blasphemous to say but i actually think the sneak and show matchup is now no longer favorable by a very large margin it, it's true i tell people that and they think i'm crazy especially other sneak and show players who haven't really played very much lately um but yeah it's really funny how that how that uh matchup has flipped so incredibly I am one in six against Sneak and Show in the past month. Yep, and I'm ten in two against Death and Taxes, uh, probably over the last two months. Okay, uh, so just just for the the listeners at home who don't play this matchup a lot, the the reason why it's flip flopped so much is that most versions of Sneak and Show, out of necessity, have warped the main deck to beat Death and Taxes by running multiple copies of Omniscience. And mm -hmm. that card is basically unbeatable. Yep. And the other thing is the printing of a braid is probably one of the best sideboard cards you can have against death and taxes. Uh, just, you know, answers random equipment, uh, vials, revokers, pithing needles, uh, plus it can, can kill containment priests or thalios or just about any creature out of uh, the death and taxes deck. And, and let's just not forget the casual Kozilek's return that ruins my life. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Kozilek's return. Oh, Mother of Ruins is a problem. Not anymore. <laughs> so, yeah, it's funny how Death and Taxes went from like a 1090 matchup for Sneak and Show to now I feel it's pretty much, I would say, it's close to being switched all the way around where now Sneak and Show is just about 90-10 favored against Death and Taxes. I, I won't quite go that far, but it is probably realistically a 30-70 matchup for me now. Like, I can win it, 
but you have to draw the wrong side of your deck, and I have to draw the right side of the answers, and it, it's been really bad. Mm. It's, it's to the point where I'm now toying around with some sideboard tech to see what I can do to try to fix that. And, uh, can I suggest uh, Telemann's performance? That's always a great one. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't make me pull out some goodies like Preacher. I'll take it. I will. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> or uh, uh, Monkey Cage. That's one of my favorites I've seen a Death and Taxes player bring in against me. <laughs> All right. It's not very often that I don't know what a card does. Oh, oh I, play that in, I play that in uh, Legacy um, Eldrazi, too. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like it costs five. It doesn't matter. You just put it into play off show and tell. Um, but it's like when a cre- when a creature comes into play, uh, sacrifice monkey cage, put uh, X, like two two monkey tokens into play where X is the creature's power. So you just have an army of two twos and just swarm over them. I, I think it's... I just like it in Staring Bridge, but that's, a, that's an interesting piece of tech right there. <laughs> Why put up an ensnaring bridge when you can just kill them with monkeys? <laughs> just play the Wicked Witch of the West theme song in the background. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, uh, it's funny, funny how legacy is constantly changing and bad matchups can become good and good matchups can become bad. Um, so what what are kind of the other uh you know, decks you're, you don't really want to see when you uh, sit down across from your opponent. If, if I had to make a short list of the top five decks I, w- I don't want to see, it's just elves five times. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> if I went to a top ten, we would then include uh, very fast combo decks like Belcher, where my turn two disruption like Thalia is, is not going to be relevant. Um we just have no interactions. There's there's no force of will. There's no days. There's uh, not even anything cute like manatize in the list that can muck with things before turn two most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, punishing fire decks can be a little bit tricky, uh, especially Jund, although that's not particularly popular anymore. Uh, Jund has a lot of card advantage in weird ways, like with... Uh, with Dark Confidant and Grim Flare and Liliana of the Veil and Punishing Fire, um, where it can just be hard to stabilize the board uh, and do anything meaningful. Otherwise, I'm good with most matchups. Again, Sneak and Show has now sort of gone full circle into being something that I fear. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of the oddball tier four decks of the format that you never <laughs> reasonably should see at an event are also difficult matchups for D&T because D&T is really meant to prey on your cantrip heavy decks but then you can just sometimes run into something like Nickfit and they just cast Siege Rhino into Sigarda Host of Herons and you just die <laughs> yeah that'll do it so yeah, I guess what's the flip side? What are if you could choose any deck to play ten game, uh, ten rounds in a row? What would it be? Grixis Delver. Grixis Delver, hands down. Yeah, I will. I will take round after round after round of Delver decks all day. Uh, looking at my Grixis Delver win percentage: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I'm eight and one against it in in the past month or two here. I mean that that's pretty good considering how popular Grixis Delver is in the meta right now. Yeah. Uh, so my win percentage against most blue 
cantrip-based decks is very, very good. Uh, so my Delver and my Checkpile matchups both look about like that. Um, so if I can play against those sorts of decks all day, I will be relatively happy. I just need to dodge Elves and super fast combo decks, and I'm pretty good. Eldrazi yes. is a little tricky as well. I'm not thrilled to get paired against that. Yeah, I feel that's a, a match that can really go either way, and I feel it's 100% uh, dependent on if you can draw your Wastelands or not. Yeah, so on hands where I start with Aether Vial into Port or Wasteland, the matchup is night and day different than the ones where I don't. The matchups where they get to go, like, turn one Chalice, turn two Thought Nuts here, turn three Reality Smasher, and, and you're just deploying a Stoneforge. Like, <laughs> you're so far behind on tempo. Um, so the, the matches where you're on the play tend to be relatively good. The matchups where you're on the draw are a lot harder. And it also depends on what deck composition they're looking at. Because some of those Eldrazi players have started running, like, four Walking Ballista in the main deck, and it's infuriating. That card's great. I don't know if you've ever gotten to play with that card before, but I, I played with it a ton when I was messing around with Food Chain. And it's amazing how good that card feels, even when you're not doing anything unfair with it. <laughs> Just want to play Food Chain for value. <laughs> Yeah, like, there, I, I, I played a couple of IQs with that deck just because uh, the Dread of Night density locally had gotten a little bit too high, you know, when you... Uh, Vic victim of your own success. success. Yeah, when you keep sweeping, uh, or at least top-aiding the local events for a year or two, people start showing up with, like, three massacres in their sideboards, and, and it's just not <laughs> worth dealing with. Uh, uh, true. So... Kind of rewinding a bit, can you walk us through the history of Death and Taxes? You know, when when did the deck really become what it is known as today? All right. Uh, so I started playing the deck in, in about 2011 or 2012, but the deck itself in some rudimentary form existed from about 2006. So that's that's about the time of Time Spiral when a wonderful little gem called Mangara of Corindor got printed. Oh, I remember that. That I wish Death and Taxes still ran that. You know, you see it occasionally, but that combo is so sweet. Uh, so for anyone not familiar with the card, uh, it lets you tap and exile target permanent and itself. And, and this is a little free mana 1-1, one -one, so it doesn't sound like it should be good. But what happens if you blink it with, say, a Flicker Wisp? Well, then you exile your opponent's permanent, but not Mangara. And Mangara comes back at your end step and is ready to go and exile another thing. So, when combined with something like Flicker Wisp or Caracas, where you can reuse Mangara, all of a sudden it is an exile machine that first deals with your threats and then starts eating your lands. Mm. Now... Important to keep in mind with Flicker Wisp, though, is don't you have to uh, flash the Flicker Wisp in with the Aether Vial in order to get the triggers right? Yes. So the way it works is you activate Mangara, choosing your target. You then tap the Aether Vial on three to put in the Flicker Wisp and target Mangara. Mangara gets blinked out, and then Mangara's ability resolves, exiling your opponent's permanent. Then Mangara comes back, ready to do it all again. <laughs> yes. It's uh, terrible... I to be on the wrong side of that. Yep. 
in the pre-Entreat the Angels days of, like, the Miracles matchup, that is how you would win. You would just win by submission. You exile their counterbalance, and then you start going for all of their lands. And they just literally could not win at all. It was fun for me. Yep. I remember when I first started uh, Magic Online, they actually had Legacy Precon decks. I don't think they have them anymore, but there were two decks. It was Burn and Death and Taxes. And it was actually like 90% of the deck. Like it gave you the Stoneforge Mystics, the Caracases. Yeah, it was like, it, like you basically only needed uh, probably like 30, 40 more dollars and you had the deck minus the Rashad imports. Um, but I remember just playing that combo, just uh, Mangara Caracas and just wiping every permanent off of my opponent's side of the field. And it just, it felt so good. It was such a sweet combo. You had to like machine gun their permanents. Yeah, machine gun, but you know, one a turn, you know, right. for, for 20 turns. <laughs> so more like kind of like a musket. <laughs> where you, fair you, enough, fair you reload the musket and then you fire and the next turn you reload the musket again and fire. But yeah, like a machine gun, like what you said, Pat. <laughs> it, 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 but, but a musket. <laughs> but a, a really musket. bad machine gun. <laughs> uh, so what happened, Phil? Why why can't I do some sweet Mangara tricks anymore? So you remember how DNT kept getting all the sweet toys? Well, prior to that, a lot of other decks got fun toys. And if you look at removal in Legacy over about the past four years, there have been the addition of some really powerful cards, uh, most notably things like Abrupt Decay and very recently Fatal Push, uh, to a lesser extent things like Dismember as well. And a lot of decks have started playing more removal. In, in the good old days... Your, uh, your, your white-based decks would have four Swords to Plowshares. Your red-based decks would have four Lightning Bolts. And that would be it for removal. And now you take a look at you know something like a Bug Delver deck, and there's a lot more removal in there than it used to be, <laughs> and in varied forms as well. Yeah, in the good old days, people used to run things like SWAT <laughs> or Smother. <laughs> it's like, uh, these are not cards that we want to be running. <laughs> Uh, so the removal just got just got too good. You couldn't use a creature-based uh, combo that was so susceptible. Yeah. Um, it's not like you can't run the card, but the other problem is that I would say Legacy has accelerated by about a, by about a turn, largely on the back of Deathrite Shaman. So now it's very op- common to see openings like Deathrite into True Name, Deathrite into Liliana of the Veil, and both of those present problems for a deck like mine where we no longer have the time to sit back and just grind people out with Mangara. It, it just doesn't happen as much. So you're telling me if we ban Deathrite Shaman I get my Mangaras back? Well... <laughs> just say, just close your eyes and say yes. Just close your eyes and say yes. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what'll happen. We'll live in a magical <laughs> world where we play four ensnaring bridges and four Mangaras and four Caracases and we'll eat everything. <laughs> Bring back the Mangara jobs. I'm I'm on it. All right, another reason to ban Deathrite Shaman. You heard it here first. <laughs> uh, what were you gonna say, Pat? Probably something logical. Uh, we don't need I we don't, don't need that. <laughs> I don't recall to be honest. <laughs> uh, all right. So after Mangara, what happened next? Okay. So the rest of the deck is terrible. Wow, rousing endorsement. 
<laughs> All right, so so if we're we're still talking about like good old days, two thousand six, two thousand seven, um, death and taxes. It's really closer to a white aggro deck because the good hate cards haven't been printed yet. Yeah, like I remember running like Sarah Angel as a staple, or no, Sarah Sarah Avenger, not 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 straight Sarah Angel, Sarah Avenger, the two drop one. <laughs> yeah, so it's even worse than that at the beginning of the deck. You're running things like Isamaru, Hound of Kanda, to do damage. And it has the upside that it can be protected by Caracas. The best hate bear of, like, the 2006 era is True Believer, which gives you Shroud. We don't, we don't have Thalia. We don't have Revoker. Uh, we even have Canonist then? I don't think we have Canonist then yet. Yeah. It's... It's rough, and so for your hate, you have to rely on things like Glow Rider, which is Thalia, but without first strike, and one mana more expensive. Tangle Wire, which really should have been stapled to a creature to be good in the deck. And uh, Hikori Dust Drinker. I don't even know what that is. Oh, see, this is a gem. It's uh, a four mana 2-2, Legendary Spirit, uh, and it's Winter Orb on a creature. Ugh. <laughs> so you have to tap four lands to then play a spell that won't let you untap your lands. Sounds okay. good. Oh, it's cool, because it's a legendary spirit, so you can bounce it with Caracas to give yourself a sweet one-sided winter orb. Oh, that's cool, and then you could take Vile up to four, because that's what you want to do in the deck. <laughs> there was some uh, tension in the early versions of the deck, uh, not gonna lie. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, those, all right, so those were a little rough. Those were a little rough. Uh, when, when, so what would you say was kind of the first big breakthrough for the deck then? 2007 brings us Umazawa's Jite, which was everything that the deck wanted. It was removal, it was life gain, it was pumping for all of these creatures, it made combat easy. However, there was a problem, because everyone else was playing Umazawa's Jite too. And... It was sort of awkward at the time, because the way the old legend rule worked was when you played a new Jite, both of them would blow up. So you had to play Jite in order to blow up the opposing Jite, instead of just having your own. Yep. It was weird. I remember those days people would run Jace Bellerin as a really specific Vindicate against Jace the Mind Sculptor. Yeah, it's exactly that thing right there. So, all right, so the, how many were you, like, running four Jites? I'm, I'm not super familiar with those old lists, but I think that's about how it went. It was, it was multiple copies for sure. And then 2009 comes along, and we get the goodies that really start to make the deck great. Is that Stoneforge? Stoneforge Mystic and Mother of Runes and... Uh, well, Mother of Ruins wasn't until 2009, really? So I, I don't know if that's when it was first printed or that's when it was added to the deck. Uh, okay, because I was going to say, like, I feel like Mother of Ruins was, was forever ago. It, it's very possible, but Stoneforge Mystic might have been the first card that you were re- willing to really play Protect the Queen with. Gotcha. Oh, uh, yeah, it's yeah, because Mother of Ruins was Urza's Legacy, which was like 2000 and I think 2000, actually, maybe even earlier. Uh, but yeah, so it was more about just protecting Stoneforge Mystic, whereas before none of the other creatures really warranted it. Yeah, um, and this is also the point 
where the deck consistently starts running Wasteland. Uh, moving the direction of the mana curve down to one and two and three, rather than sort of an assortment heavier at the three and maybe even four drop slot, made that possible. Um, prior to this point, you saw a lot of things like Oblivion Ring and Stone Cloaker in the deck that weren't great. And now that the deck starts to get a little more pared down, a little more aggressive, we start to see that D&T can really start going heavier on the mana denial plan. And is this about when Rashad and Port was added to the deck as well, or is that later? Uh, Port, Port had been around for a while. Uh, I don't have the exact date when that was added in my set of notes here. Uh, but probably from right about the point where it was printed and able to be put into the deck, it, it would have been in, if I were to take a guess. Um, so Stoneforge, it kind of turn adds almost a, a combo element, uh, where you're, you're trying to Voltron up a creature. Whereas before you were just kind of like death and taxes really has the bad rep of just being a dumb white weenie deck. And it, you know, it just really hasn't been that way for a long time. No, these days it is very much a control deck where the control pieces are stapled to creatures. But prior to this, it, it had been... A control deck that really had to take on an aggro role more often than it wanted. But then the cards get better. Um, and right around this time, in, in the next year, we get Phyrexian Revoker followed by Thalia, Guardian of Draven. And then from there on out, the deck is competitively viable 100% of the time, unless Elves is the tier 1 absolute top of the metagame. Revoker and Thalia... Uh, that I feel is kind of when uh, Death and Taxes first started showing up on a lot of people's radar as an actual, you know, competitive deck that can demand some respect. Um, it, you know, it was, it's putting up some tournament finishes. Would you say it's, you know, tier one at that point? Death and Taxes at that point preyed on all of the best decks very, very well. Um, so that would have still been the time where, like, Rug Delver was the Delver deck of choice. Um a blue-white control deck or a blue-white stone blade deck was pretty popular then, and we still saw a lot of the mainstream staples like we see now, um, like Ant being relatively popular. Mm. And we were kind of still seeing the last vestiges of decks like Zoo and Merfolk and Goblins. They were kind of hitting the tail end of their heyday as Rug Delver rose to prominence. Yeah. But the thing is that no one really respected D&T as a deck at the time, because it didn't do anything objectively powerful. There was borderline nobody playing it. Uh, there were a handful of diehards die on MTG Salvation who really repped it hard and, and thought the deck was great. But as far as like results on an SCG open, you, you almost never saw it. It was kind of like a rare butterfly when it appeared on, uh, on the finishes. And then it starts creeping up more and more and more, and it starts to stop being this fringe deck that sometimes shows up that people don't really know how to play against well to a staple of the tournament scene. Yeah, I feel Europe also had a big, uh, to, you know, part in, to play in that, just because I remember first seeing some of the really big death and taxes finishes coming out of Europe when they're playing against these, you know. Uh, slower storm, even like doomsday type matchups, which I feel can be pretty good to, for Death and Taxes so long as they don't turn one you. 
so you're probably thinking of 2013. That's when Thomas Ennevoldson and Michael Bondet just destroyed uh, G.P. Strasburg. Hmm. Uh, I think they, yes. they both top-aided there, and I, I think Ennevoldson won, memory serves, or, or did very well. I think it was a death in taxes win that for that, yeah. Um, and after that, like, everyone had their eyes on the deck. Awesome. So did I skip ahead? Was there some time up into that? Uh, really, the only thing is uh, Rest in Peace got printed, which was just oh, uh, yes. a godsend of sideboard technology. And we could stop playing terrible cards like uh, Tormod's Crypt and, and things of that. <laughs> Bring back Tormod's Crypt. <laughs> uh, I think they like reprinted Tormod's Crypt recently in like a, like a extra set type deal, like Commander or something. And I'm just like, who is still playing this card? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, okay, so t- 2013, Europeans kind of really bring it to the forefront, uh, and then from there we kind of just get on the slide of just creature after creature being printed for the deck, I feel like, right? Oh, yeah, just to name a few more goodies from earlier that we didn't hit on, uh, we got Spirit of the Labyrinth, Brimaz, King of Oreskos, uh, Council's Judgment, in, in there as well. Those first two don't necessarily still see play, but they're still very good in the shell when the time is right. Right. I'm still not surprised when I see them pop up. Like, I've seen Spirit of the Labyrinth come in uh, against me, uh, uh, you know, to try and shut down Grizzlebrand, which I feel is a losing proposition. Uh, if I already have a 7-7 lifelinker, it's probably not going to end well for you anyways. Uh, and then Brimaz, I can I still see in uh, matchups where people are just really just trying to get that army in a can effect. Yeah, it's it's really good in like the the miracles type matchups where the matchups are long and grindy, uh, and you can protect him with Crocus, and he also happens to live through things like Punishing Fire and Lightning Bolt, um, making him convenient in things like the lands matchup. Yeah, that uh, that four toughness can be a real problem sometimes. Are these cards kind of still viable uh, to this day, or would you feel the list has been refined a bit more? Um, you know, you kind of have your toolbox, and these other cards have kind of fallen by the wayside. I would say at this exact moment, it's really important to be playing a lot of Mirren Crusader. There's, mm-hmm. there's so much fatal push of Brock Decay and, and all the removal in check pile that he tends to dodge that it's just very important to max out on him for his evasive ability more than anything else. Right. Having protection from green-black is pretty huge uh, for the deck. Plus, you know, Sword of Fire and Ice is the sword of choice for the deck, so when you throw Sword of Fire and Ice on a Mirren Crusader, it makes it nigh impossible to kill that guy. <laughs> yeah, that, that is correct. Um I have many tournament reports where I say, oh, yep, in this turn I did 32 damage with Mirren Crusader after I put some equipment on him. <laughs> it's really silly what that guy is capable of. Oh, yeah, especially Jit. Like, throwing a Jit on a Mirren Crusader with double strike, it's like, I get four t- uh, tokens a turn. <laughs> it's, uh, Mirren Crusader plus equipment is a two-turn clock, period. Like, he will just get you dead. Mm-hmm. So that's the secret sauce right now, run four Mirren Crusader. Yeah, I've been pushing that really hard. Um, you you can approach the metagame in other ways. Uh, there was a... I think it was a legacy challenge on Moto where someone opted to run two Rest in Peace in their main deck. 
and that was their way to fight against all the Snapcaster mages and uh, Deathrite shamans and such that they had been seeing running around. Hmm. Uh, all right. I- I'm not sure how I feel about that. I just feel like it's a dead card too often of the time, but I, I can see that. So it's it's weird because like it's absolutely one of the best sideboard cards in the deck. It's probably right. the most boarded-in sideboard card, but when it is bad, it is unplayable. Whereas something mm-hmm. like Phyrexian Revoker, when it's bad, it's still a 2-1 guy. It, it still helps win the game. Oh, please, Wizards, do not print a rest in peace on legs. For the love of God, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a do or don't. It's a how long do I have to wait. <laughs> it's sad because it's true. You're, you're probably right. Give, give me five years and we'll have a legendary Flicker Wisp that I can keep bouncing with Caracas. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, not, it, you know, it, it'll be too soon the day it comes. Too soon. <laughs> uh, so, okay, so Mirren Crusader. Uh, we also kind of touched on the equipment package. Uh, have you tried any of the other swords? Uh, you know, I see Feast and Famine from time to time, but that's about it. I preach sword of war and peace as like the be all end all sideboard card uh it is my pet card and i fully admit that but i believe that it is worth all the praise that i give it this card single-handedly breaks the mirror open because a lot of times your opponent can just get an umazawa's jite and get that online so what do you do you put a phyrexian revoker on it you put a pithing needle on it you know you flicker wisp it out But you need something else in order to sort of get past that. And Sword of War and Peace is that tool. Because giving your guys that protection from white, along with an absurd damage boost, just closes out the game in a turn or two. So the the protection from white in particular, I'm sorry, did you say the, the mirror match or just miracles or... Oh, it's good there too. The protection against swords to plowshares is is crazy good in the Miracles matchup, as well as in the Mirror. And I also want you to consider the damage boost from Sword of War and Peace. If you are playing a cantrip-based deck, like even say something like Sneak and Show, it's common for you to have five to seven cards in hand. Well, oh, that yeah. means the trigger from Sword of War and Peace will do that much damage. <laughs> that is true. That is true. So I generically board in that card against most combo matches, and the trigger will do five to seven damage more often than not, um, and you close out the game quickly. Yeah, I mean, I, I can definitely see it. Sword of Fire and Ice is the equipment I'm most afraid of coming out of the Death and Taxes. Uh, you know, I don't really care about Batter Skull, don't really care about Jit, because by the time they get it turned on, it's too late. But Sword of Fire and Ice, that's a whole different story. Yeah, uh, Sword of Fire and Ice is the best generic equipment in many ways. When you don't know what to fetch, that's often the right one. Because it draws you cards, it does some extra damage, it has some relevant protection. It, it does a lot for one card. But there are a lot of scenarios where something like Sword of War and Peace will just destroy a matchup. You know, you, you get that out against a, a Stoneblade player, and all of a sudden their removal options have just gone down the drain. Other than that, most of the other pieces of equipment tend to be unplayable unless you're in a really weird metagame. Uh, for example, when uh, Reed Duke... Uh, first premiered that, like, four-color Leovold deck um, that was, like, largely a Bant deck that had Leovold in it. Um, I played Sword of Body and Mind for a couple of weeks to push through all the true names that were there. 
<laughs> I feel body and mind uh, has such a give and take nature because you wonder, am I going to kill them with damage first or am I going to kill them with milling first? <laughs> There's also the third thing to consider, which is, am I going to mill something that's relevant and secretly help them out? True. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty dangerous with all these snapcasters running around. So there, there were a couple of times where I tried out that card and I'd mill them. And it was like, all right, great. This is great. I have this wolf. And then they go and play something like a Knight of the Reliquary. And it's like, oh, this is a <laughs> this is a 14-14 now. I'm going to attack in again. And then I'm going to turn it into like a 20-20. And I don't know what's going to happen. I just hope he can't get through somehow with a Sariji step and I die. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, that can be rough. Don't, don't mill your opponents in Legacy, folks. It, it's usually bad. Considering there are plenty of decks that would love to mill themselves. There's um, one other piece of equipment that sometimes sees play, and it's Manriki Gusari, which yes. is tap to destroy a piece of equipment. Uh, that is far too narrow for my liking. Um, it's largely exactly for the DNT and Stoneblade matchups, and that's it. Yeah, I feel it's just too narrow right now. Like, I remember the heyday of Manruki Gazari back in probably like 2014, 2015, when Esper Stoneblade was everywhere and just kind of Stoneblade decks in general. Uh, and you used to see Manruki Gazari's uh, left and right. I'm still not surprised when I lose to it and someone has it. Like, that's fine. But I feel like Sword of War and Peace would usually win you the same sorts of matchups and has better uses elsewhere. So. What's the future of the deck, Phil? Where are we going next? The deck is, is in an okay position right now. Um, the the players who are very dedicated to it, um, like myself and, and Derek So, have, have been doing very well at, at our events. Um, but a lot of generic players, especially newer ones, are, are really struggling right now. Um, and with some of the previously good matchups getting harder, um, Sneak and Show in particular as well as Eldrazi coming back into the limelight, um, we might enter into a period where D&T isn't quite as well positioned as people would like it to be. But right now, I, I think it is one of the better decks, and very clearly towards the top end of Tier 1. When your matchup percentage against Delver and Checkpile is absurdly good, it's, it's hard to go wrong with the deck. Yeah, it almost feels like a, a Tier 0 deck where in the in the right matchups when it plays what it wants it's just unstoppable absolutely like against only the known and expected metagame i often feel like it is just the best deck in the format period but you have to make it through round three of the tournament before you start just <laughs> consistently playing the top of the metagame and in those first couple of rounds where you play against things like you know high tide that you might not expect you can really struggle. All right. Uh, any big events on the horizon you're looking forward to? Um, there's a win a Lotus event in Baltimore next month that I'll probably go to. Um, otherwise, I will probably just go to the Invitational this weekend and mess around and play some Legacy rather than uh, trying to play Standard and Modern in uh, the main event. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, all right. Uh, let's, let's talk about your website a little bit. Can you, uh, you know, walk us through, uh, besides just educating people about the deck, what are kind of your goals with it? What, what's your plans with it? So when I, when I first made the deck, it, it was my plan to just sort of 
educate people. And then it sort of became my home for, you know, tournament reports that I previously previously just was posting, posting on various forums and Facebook groups and such. Um, I have a lot more that I want to do with the website that I either don't know how to do on my own or I just need a little more time to get going. Uh, for example, I'm uh, in the process of building a new computer so that I can effectively stream the deck um, on a regular basis because, you know, if I'm playing 20 rounds on Moto a week, it, it seems easy enough to start streaming. Um, that's probably the next big step. Um, I'd also like to get a few more pilots um, on and doing some regular content for me because when I've collaborated with people, I've gotten some, some excellent work. Uh, Chris Cunningham, for example, wrote me a wonderful program that like calculates how many different mana sources you need to effectively splash cards in the deck and see them by X turn of the matchup. So I'd be really excited to do more stuff like that and collaborate with people who have different skill sets than myself. Awesome. Um, yeah, so... Let's. We kind of touched on that a little bit before, but do you want to dive into that that mana base tool and kind of what what options the deck has? Uh, maybe for people who are just familiar with generic uh, death and taxes and haven't really experienced the various uh, flavors that the deck can offer. All right. So it depends on how cheeky you want to get and how greedy you're willing to be. The, the cheekiest and the greediest. <laughs> so. The cheekiest and greediest versions splash both white and black. Oh, yes. <laughs> Wait, they splash splash white and black or? Uh, red and black. Ah, uh, as I have heard it referred to skunk in a blender. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> that's cute. I'll, I'll take any name that isn't Mardu. That gives me shivers. <laughs> So yeah, I would say that's probably the least represented uh color shard in Legacy. I I can't think of any, you know, big competitive decks red, white and black. Yeah, it's it's not a good color combination um because a lot of times once you've gone that deep down the the color pie, you want blue to hold everything together with cantrips. There's not a lot of reasons to play this color combination. And even when you're splashing two colors in D&T, it's still almost entirely a white deck. Mm -hmm. So what are, what are we splashing for? If you splash red, the big appeal is Magus of the Moon. This card is stupid powerful in Legacy, which is a format dominated largely by dual lands, or alternatively, powerful lands with utility, uh, whether it's producing extra mana like Ancient Tomb, or whether it's destroying everything you know and love with something like the Tabernacle of Pendravale. So shutting all of that stuff off and turning them into mountains will often just win the game on the spot. You can also get real cheeky and then play Pia and Kirin in your deck. <laughs> oh, you're talking about this last week because we saw it show up in the blue-red Delver list and it just kind of seemed out of place. Yeah, but, it doesn't uh... seem very good. Like, I wasn't sure where it fit in the blue-red Delver list. I'm also interested in... To see where it fits in the in the death and taxes. Okay, so I don't think it fits in a blue red Delver list at all. But I am I am not a Delver player, so I'll leave that for someone else to destroy. Um, in death and taxes, it's really neat because it's tutor, tutorable removal. It's an army in a can effect. You get multiple bodies off one card, and 
you already have Caracas in your deck. So you can keep bouncing it to create an army of Thopters. So oh, in the, I like, like that. that. Yeah. In the really long grindy matchups, like say something like Check Pile or Miracles, you can set your vial to four, vial in your Pia and Kieran, or, or cast it for the first time, bounce it, vial it back in, and just keep creating an army. And you can hurl all of these things to give yourself a surprising amount of reach or removal. So... Well, I guess the activate ability was red, but I but I guess for even just Magus, do you even need to run plateaus in the deck between uh, Cavern of Souls and Aether Vial? Um, without going into the math of it, you you can splash some cards off a couple of Cavern of Souls and deploy them a good portion of the time. I think it is very wise that if you are going to splash some cards, that you also play a couple of fetch lands and really round out the mana base that way. Uh, playing too many Cavern of Souls makes it really hard to cast things like Swords to Plowshares and Gideon mm. and Council's Judgment. And so I, I like having some supplemental um, lands in there to give you some amount of uh, true white sources that are also the color you need um so yeah i i like that uh besides magus and p and kira any other kind of spicy one ofs that uh, people will throw in it feels like you can just get so much with the introduction of imperial recruit or not imperial recruiter recruiter of the guard um that you know the the world's your oyster just you know throw anything you like in there Correct. Uh, so usually the one card that people splash black for, um, oftentimes not even off any black sources, just off three or four Ooh. caverns. Can I guess? Yes. Is it Pontiff? Oh, it's Pontiff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ors of Pontiff is the most wonderful little critter ever because it destroys most of Legacy. And it, and it sounds really stupid to say that, because it's a negative one, negative one, one-sided board wipe on a creature. But it does so much. It gets true name off the battlefield. It can wipe an army of elves. In something like the Mirror Match, um, it will get rid of all of the opposing Mother of Runes and Revokers. Against something like Delver, it can go and eat a bunch of young Pyromancer tokens and unflipped Delvers. Uh, it's it's crazy the amount of work that one card can Plus you get it twice because of Haunt, which is... Such a weird keyword. <laughs> so when this card is put into a graveyard from play, remove it to the game Haunting Target Creature. When Orzov Pontiff comes into play, or the creature it haunted is put into a graveyard, so keep track of your triggers, folks. <laughs> Choose one. Creatures you control get plus one, plus one until end of turn, or creatures you don't control get minus one, minus one. So it's zealous persecution on a dude with some weird trigger effects. Yeah, the the second side usually doesn't happen, but a lot of times when it does, your opponent does not see it coming, and then there's this terrible, terrible blowout. The second side being the plus one, plus one, or the haunt? The haunt. Oh, people just forget about it? Yeah. Like, you, you exile it haunting some creature, and they just don't take it into consideration when they're doing their combat map. And they'll attack in, and you chump block, and then the pontiff trigger happens, and a bunch of their guys die. How often would you say you give the plus one, plus one? The plus one mode usually only happens when you are trying to save your creatures from an opposing sweeper effect, um, like, a, say, a pyroclasm or a zealous persecution, 
or when you're swinging in for lethal. Because if you have four little critters on board, you know, you can tap your vial, put that in, and then all of a sudden your opponent dies a turn sooner than they think. Uh, it's, right. it's a weird source of, quote, haste damage for D&T, which normally doesn't have that sort of thing at all. Yeah, uh, pump effects are definitely not something I would expect out of my Death and Taxes opponents. Uh, the only other way we get that is with Gideon, ally of Zendikar, making an emblem. So anything else in black uh, that the deck likes to splash for? Like, does it ever do things like Cabal Therapy or other hand disruption? Some people have tried, but they've been unsuccessful. Yeah, I feel if you go too far down that rabbit hole, you just turn into a bad version of Dead Guy Ale, and Dead Guy Ale is already... Uh you know, feels like a subpar version of something like Esper. The reason it doesn't tend to work is actually because of the mana base. If you're trying to run four wastes and four ports and a couple of Cavern of Souls to splash these creatures, you might have something like 11 sources of pseudo-colorless mana in your deck. And if you're trying to cast a discard spell on turn one with your splash color and it can't be a Cavern... It, it just doesn't work mathematically. So if you wanted to play something, you'd have to go to a creature like something like Tide Hollow Sculler, and that's not the most appealing discard spell. Yeah, I remember when I first saw Tide, Tide Hollow Sculler, I'm like, oh, this card's awesome, because like, I was playing Reanimator, and it had just blown me out. And then playing with Tide Hollow Sculler, you're like, there are better things to be doing than this. <laughs> <laughs> There's one other card that's really worth consideration, and, and that's Bob, Dark Confidant. Ah, yes. That card's just always good. Um, a little tricky to cast on curve in a lot of the splash builds, um, and, and I won't usually splash him, um, but I understand people who do. So are you, you know, kind of strictly on the mono-white version? Do you ever play around with the splash versions? Um... I play whatever version of the deck I believe to be the best at any given time. I believe that most of the time, the mono-white deck has the greatest amount of stability, and so it's usually correct to just play that. But, especially at the local level, if you have a couple of matchups that you need to shore up, splashing helps so much. Like, if you know that you're going to play against True Name Nemesis and Elves every week, and splashing black for a couple of pontiffs will do you wonder. But there are other people who would very much disagree with me. Um, uh, Mark Koenig, who goes by the handle Bafra, uh, is almost always playing a three-color build. Uh, his, his mana bases are a little ambitious and stretched because of that, um, but he has very, very good success with it. All right, so I, maybe it's not something you see as often, but you know people should be prepared for those uh, spicy haymakers out of death and taxes. Especially that P and Kieran Alar. I really want to see that in action. That, <laughs> that seems fun. Especially with Caracas. <laughs> so there's a, a really good red build floating around um, that a uh, source user, um, Ayati, has been champion, championing, championing uh, that goes to a 24th land and plays more four drops. So in the 75, there are two Pia and Kirins and two Palace Jailers in that list. So it goes really big and attempts to grind out matchups like Checkpile. Mm. Yeah, I remember, I, I, was Palace Jailer probably the most recent addition to the deck? Uh, I remember seeing that start to pop up, and now I feel it's almost a staple of the deck at this point. It's weird. So Palace Jailer 
is either the best card in your deck or the worst card in your deck at any given time, with very little in between. Uh, when your opponent has something like True Name Nemesis on board that you just can't deal with and they keep getting the Monarch crown back, it's very bad. But when you have things more or less turtled up on your side of the board and you're drawing a card every turn, you know, one-sided one Howling Mind wins you the game. Mm-hmm. It's also it's also weird because so when it comes into play, it exiles. Is it a creature or permanent? Creature. Oh my god, it's, it's permanent. <laughs> <laughs> but then it you would think with that it's like you get that creature back uh, when the creature dies, like something like Fiend Hunter. But that's not the case. It's you get the creature back when you become the monarch. So I remember like getting my Grizzlebrand stolen with a uh, palace jailer. And then going like Pyroclasm Sudden Shock on the Palace Jailer to get Grizzlebrand back. And then my opponent is going, that's not how it works. <laughs> <laughs> I still keep your Grizzlebrand. <laughs> yeah, I've probably had that happen like 20 times where the opponent just bolts my guy. And then I just leave their card next. They're like, what? And then I just <laughs> hand the card to them and let them read it. And they just like face palm. <laughs> Yep, that was a hard lesson to learn, but I will always remember that. It, once Palace Jailer comes into play, he really doesn't matter, which is kind of the beautiful thing about him. Like, you don't need to protect him. He's just a dude. He already got his value. So the, the scary part is, from decks like Checkpile that have a bunch of disposable bodies, you know, the, the things like Snapcaster Mage and Baleful Strix, that you literally do not care about, they're more than fine with making a suicide attack in, getting the crown, and then trying to protect it for the rest of the game. And Checkpile normally outvalues you, so if they're outvaluing you and they get another card, uh, it's a slippery slope towards the loss. So Palace Jailer, not for the you know grindy creature-based decks. I'm guessing Palace Jailer is also probably pretty bad in el- against elves. Yeah, I, I would not board it in there. That would, uh, that would be a poor choice. <laughs> Um, what are the other kind of sideboard tools? Anything we haven't really touched on yet? A lot of the sideboard is stock. It just shores up problems. So the sideboard tends to run about six graveyard hate cards, about four extra removal cards, and then a couple of generically useful tools. Uh, Gideon, Ally of Zendikar, falls into that category. Where it's not particularly good at any one thing, but it does a number of roles well enough that it's worth a slot. It's this card which is a planeswalker against control decks that can create guys against opposing hate like Dread of Night and Sulphur Elemental. It sort of negates those. And it can also just be a giant guy that bashes in when your opponent doesn't have white-based removal. What about things like Armageddon and Cataclysm? We see that out of Death and Taxes from time to time. Those are currently in the not-in-favor pile because it's really awkward to run Cataclysm and Gideon in the same deck. Uh, wait, does Cataclysm deal with Gideon, I thought? Yeah, so the way Cataclysm is worded is each one of you selects, uh, what is it, an artifact, uh, a creature, Uh, a land, and you sacrifice the rest of your permanents. (laughs) Yep, it's the same thing as with uh, Pernicious Deed, only the opposite effect. (laughs) Pernicious Deed and Planeswalkers love each other because Pernicious Deed doesn't say Planeswalker and destroy destroy everything else. 
whereas Cataclysm says pick one of each and then destroy everything else. I don't care if it's a planeswalker. I wasn't printed when that, uh, you know, when planeswalkers were a thing. <laughs> yeah. So Cataclysm used to be just like the absolute best sideboard card because if you resolved one of those against like uh, pre-mentor miracles, they just couldn't win the game because you nuked like five of their lands and killed their Jace and like they sometimes literally could not get up to enough mana to win the game again. And Armageddon was kind of replaced by Cataclysm just because, you know, killing pretty much all of their lands is good enough, plus taking out the rest of their board. Yeah, um, the the cards are very different. Armageddon is kind of this, I want to get ahead on board and then nuke us both, whereas Cataclysm is sometimes a crawlback from behind card where you're behind on board, your opponent has like a Liliana's Avail and a Jace the Mind Sculptor in play, and you get most of their lands in both of those cards. Um, so they're, they're functionally different, even though they would come in in a lot of the same matchups. And but now because you got your own shiny Planeswalkers, you can't run it anymore. Yeah. Um, if you run it, you probably run it along, uh, alongside Flagstones so that you can get some extra value off it and sort of effectively sacrifice one less land than your opponent does. Mm-hmm. And that's flagstones of Tark. Uh, was it Trocare? Trocare. Yeah, I, I I remember it being a T and then various amounts of syllab- syllables. <laughs> but uh, when it dies, you search your library for a planes and put it into play. Uh, yeah. And it's also a legendary land too, isn't it? It is. So when when you play multiples, you uh get to effectively use one as a lotus petal and then search out another basic. Oh, because they come into play untapped. Uh, so the the basic comes into play tapped i believe yeah the basic comes into play tapped uh what what i'm saying is like you can tap one play a new one sacrifice the old one get a basic basic planes Uh, i see what you're saying yeah so it it they effectively replace themselves yeah i remember that from kind of the old the old old version i was running like with mangara uh would do that in armageddon and flagstones in order to kind of get a little bit of an edge now harp on it again uh with death right shaman around just destroying all of your opponent's land doesn't stop them from playing their spells anymore <laughs> thanks death right shaman yeah so death right shaman our lord and savior <laughs> what it, you don't like grizzlebrand here you say that i was just kidding i was just kidding sorry grizzlebrand <laughs> yeah, sorry you, grizz daddy you better apologize <laughs> i'm gonna take out the hook belt <laughs> i'll say the rosary tonight don't worry <laughs> pay seven draw seven uh anything else about the deck uh you wanted to touch on that that hits on on most of the stuff that that i i normally talk about when i talk about the deck uh one one thing i want to reiterate is that even though the deck is very very good it's it's not easy to pick up and if you want to start playing it have other people watch your matches and watch you play and and ask questions ask your opponent how you should be sideboarding because you miss more than you realize when you first start playing this deck. And a lot of times you'll randomly just lose games because you chose the wrong hate bear to play on turn two after only seeing one card from your opponent. As mm. weird as that sounds. Yeah, actually, I feel it's kind of a catch-22 because as far as legacy decks go, I feel Death and Taxes is probably one of the most affordable legacy decks to get into, but it's also a very difficult one for a new player. And this results in a lot of death and taxes players being below average in terms of play skill because they pick up the deck and 
they don't know what they're doing. They've just put the deck together, it's their first tournament, or they've borrowed their buddy's deck because they have all these white cards they're not using in their Brainstorm deck, and so it's the loner deck. I would say at least a third of Death and Taxes opponents I play against are borrowing someone else's deck. I don't know if that's just my personal experience or a indication of the overall trend of Death and Taxes players, but Death and Taxes gets loaned out left and right. It's very true. And so you you see a lot of people talking about their amazing Death and Taxes matchup, and then they go and play against the better players, and they're like, I don't don't know what happened. I just just, just lost. Everything went wrong. (laughs) <laughs> he, just, he just ported me for 20 turns he, he just killed me with a mother of runes he was so patient <laughs> oh, that's the insult win when they kill you with the mother of runes over 20 turns <laughs> look everyone thinks mom just sits back but secretly she has this mode where she can attack <laughs> unused hidden mode unused hidden mode excellent <laughs> So, given all of that, is it still a deck you would recommend people pick up if they're interested in the playstyle? Yes. I, I would say if you are interested in long-term legacy success, and you are willing to put in the hours to learn it, Death and Taxes is a deck that will pretty much always be good in some form, and likely will only get better as time goes on, because we keep getting absurd hate bears. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta talk to Gavin about that. Stop printing... So many hate bears. <laughs> uh, so, is there anything that would ever get you off of Death and Taxes? When Elves is a Tier 1 deck, it is time to not play Death and Taxes. And, like, that is just a fact. The, the Elves matchup is realistically a 20-80 matchup, and even if you adjust your sideboard to beat it, it it's still just impossible uh i in the time where elves picked up to be one of the most popular decks by a huge margin i was doing things like playing chalice of the void and orzhov pontiff in the main to stand a chance that's not where the deck wants to be (laughs) no (laughs) jeez not at all (laughs) Um, all right so if elves is a tier one uh, I don't think they ever would ban anything out of Death and Taxes, but is there anything you could think of ever getting hit with the ban hammer? All of the individual cards in this deck are terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bunch of terrible cards that come together to do great things. <laughs> yeah, like, the the best card in the deck is probably something like, like Aether Vial or Thalia, and, like, neither one of those cards is anywhere near ban-worthy in, in any form. So the, the deck is very, very safe in that regard. Right. It also feels, you know, being a hate bears deck, that the deck is just made up of answers, and Wizards never bans answers, they ban problems. Yes. There, there's no problem card in this deck. There's some things that are really frustrating to be on the wrong side of, but nothing that's an inherent problem. Um, I mean, if if Wizards wants to ban Thalia, I, I'd be okay with it. You know, I might I might shed a tear, but... If it's time to go, Thalia, it's time to go. <laughs> yeah, that that would be something that would very likely kill the deck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sorry, I'm just, you know, fantasizing about a world without Thalia. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, awesome. Um, should we get into scoops? 
Sure. Yeah, we can do scoops. Awesome. Who do we have first? Oh, so we got Phil first. Uh, Phil, so we don't do we don't do shout outs. We do scoops in the top eight because we're special snowflakes and we do things differently around these parts. Is there anyone you'd like to scoop in the top eight today? Definitely Paul Lynch, one of the grinders from the Baltimore area. Uh, and when I was playing at him, playing against him in my last paper event, uh, it was a team event, and uh, he had a ponder. He treated it like a brainstorm and the cards touched his hand and it's a really unfortunate judge call if you've ever been on the wrong side of that where i got to choose which cards were his ponder and which cards were his hand Mm -hmm. and and he's a good friend of mine so like seeing that happen just was gut-wrenching so if i could scoop him into top eight that would that would be a good way to make up for that (laughs) sorry you missed out on the real top eight but here's this fantasy top eight instead Uh, anyone else? Uh, maybe my roommate Sean French. He was he was biking and just broke his collarbone, so uh, a top eight might feel good. He, he's a tin fins player, so getting tin fins in the top. Yeah, I was gonna say it's like that name sounds really familiar. <laughs> yeah, he's the he's the pretty well known uh, tin fins player. Wow, that is a sitcom: a death and taxes and tin fins player living under <laughs> one roof. Oh, there, there are four magic players here. Uh, uh, oh yeah. In addition, um, I have Harley Cox, who uh, just uh, top aided the Open with Eldrazi, uh, and then uh, a lesser-known player who just plays at the local level. <laughs> he doesn't get his name read. <laughs> he can have his name read when he's good. <laughs> good, make him work for it. <laughs> he's got to come out to more events. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, all right. What about you, Pat? Uh, I don't have anyone to scoop in the top eight this week. All right, cool. Yeah, pass. <laughs> Jerry, I, I got a few. Uh, so all Josh right. Sissio, uh, for whining and dining me. Uh, David, I'm sorry we didn't get to play, man. I really was looking forward to it, but family first. Uh, you know, you, you got to do what you got to do. Uh, also, TJ's for putting on another great event. I uh, really hope they keep doing these uh, quarterly legacy events because it was a great time. And, uh, you know, they, they well, it's run well, you know, runs on time. You know, no complaints. TJ's does a good job. Nice. Uh, and actually, if you're listening to this on Friday, tomorrow is the Gaming Etc. 1K. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play in that, Pat. You going to make it? Nice. Uh, I cannot. Unfortunately, I have to work, but I should be able to make... The Bridgewater, uh, the Scholars Tournament on the 9th. So I'm looking forward to that. Yep. Yeah. So I wanted to plug that to uh, Scholars Games. The next Saturday, they're doing a Legacy 1K. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I just wanted to give a quick shout out uh, for Cards Against Cancer. Um, so uh, Game King, the Powerful Wizards is the group. Um group of guys getting together uh they're hosting a charity tournament it's modern it's at game king and fall river but uh top eight is all dual lands nice yeah so come out great great cause you know benefit benefits uh cancer research uh and you know play and win some duels awesome i saw that i was just disappointed that it was modern but i know modern if you play Modern, try to win some Legacy Duels. Yeah, it is uh, the Sunday, so the day after the Gaming Etc. Legacy 1K. So if uh, nice. Legacy doesn't shake out for you, play Modern the next day. Awesome. 
I guess it's I guess it's all right to get like modern players dual land so they get in get into legacy, right, Pat? They're not gonna they're not gonna get into legacy. I know that's the thing. They, they just don't do it. They're just gonna take that. That's okay. They, they, they don't need dual lands. They can just play four Mirror Crusaders in modern until they're ready to play <laughs> four Mirror Crusaders in legacy. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, does does death attacks exist in uh in modern at all? Uh, technically, the answer is yes. Technically, okay. <laughs> It's not nearly as good. You miss out on a lot of the fun toys like uh, Mother of Runes and Stoneforge that really hold the package together. Mm. Uh, and you end up relying on a lot of things like Blade Splicer and Restoration Angel instead. Ugh. Gross. <laughs> that sounds kind of fun to me. I always like Blade Splicer. Uh, that is a trick. If you ever want to hate me out of a cube, I will never pass a Blade Splicer in a cube. <laughs> I don't know why. I just always have to take Blade Splicer. <laughs> Got to get him with Eldrazi Displacer, and then then you have a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, see, exactly. That's great. Or Teferi, uh, just so so good. <laughs> uh, awesome. All right, uh, we gotta do. Uh, di- oh, we gotta do contact info first. So you can of course find Jerry on uh, on Twitter at jmee3rd. You can find me on Twitter at Pat Uglo. Uh, you can find uh, me streaming occasionally, you know, once a month or so, uh, twitch.tv slash patuglo. You can find the gr- uh, the Facebook group. Uh, the link is in the show notes. You can find us on Patreon, Leaving Legacy, you know, patreon.com slash Leaving Legacy. Wow. Uh, just for search for Leaving Legacy and all the bullshit, you can find us there. Sound um, more excited, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of actually streaming, I still owe you that Iconic Masters draft. So maybe we should, we should do a, a duo stream. Yeah, except I don't want to do it on. I don't want to do it online. I want paper cards. No, let's do it online. <laughs> what? I don't want online. I don't want digital objects. I already have some digital bed. iconic master specs that uh, we can we can use it for. <laughs> you can send me those paper ones that you got in. Uh, fine, fine. I'll give you paper packs. <laughs> just just admit you can't beat me, Jerry. It's fine. I can't beat your random luckiness. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Right. Random luckiness. Hey, let's do two consecutive top eights where we call out who's going to have the most showings in the top eight, and I get it. I get it both times. Do I auto practically win eight I... out of eight in both ones? <laughs> do I auto win if I'm one of the ones in the top eight? Is that how that works? Well, you have to make it in the top eight first, Jerry. So <laughs> uh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you got a die to roll. I do. Oh, we got number one, Pat. Oh, finally, Ian Seafelt, Awadama Fever by Baby Metal, which is like this terrible <laughs> Japanese it was garbage like, band. <laughs> when did he uh, put this on? Because this was like the thing when he put it on, I feel. Uh, August 6th of 2016. Oh, so. uh, yeah. I love it when memes from over a year ago come back to haunt us. <laughs> yeah. Nothing like uh, nothing like clear and present fucking... Um, you know what? I'm just gonna play Danger Zone. No, you have to. I want to hear some J-pop death metal. That's what oh, I want. God. I want J-pop death metal. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna message him and see if he still, want, if he still feels comfortable with that. <laughs> Do choice. not try and tamper. Do you feel with good the about results. yourself, Ian? Do you feel good about yourself with that choice? Probably not. Uh, he probably does. He's the one who introduced me to Jepsen Malort. So anyone who drinks Jepsen Malort cannot, uh, you know, he doesn't like happiness. <laughs> If you've seen the music videos for uh, the baby metal, it's even better. Just oh yeah, yeah. Is, is there a way we can turn this into a video cast, Pat? Just so we can do Absol- the, the Jerry music video. Jerry, we all know that you and I do not have faces for video, my friend. <laughs> we barely have voices for vi- for for audio. <laughs> <laughs> ah, 
All right. Play us out with something sweet. <laughs> <laughs>